always joke that you know I'm, I'm not working class, I'm lower class because no one worked in my family. But I think your your class and how you view the world and how you view money doesn't change because you've been born into a way of thinking. Hello and welcome back to the Sifted podcast, brought to you by our partner Zendesk for Startups. Sifted is the new media publication telling the stories of Europe's top entrepreneurs and the businesses they're building. I'm your host, Michael Stothard, editor of Sifted, and in this podcast, you'll hear from the humans behind the stories, including the founders, innovating our futures, and the people whose lives are changing as a result. We'll be speaking to the journalists who broke the stories, as well as highlighting need-to-know sector info on some of Europe's most cutting-edge industries. We'll also introduce you to my five-year-old daughter, Eliza, who will be putting founders through their paces as London's newest and shrewdest investor. So your company, if people want to do something and they can't do it, you help them do it. More from Eliza later, but this week we're diving into the world of wealth and the new banking technologies designed to cater to the next generation of the super rich. Scores of young millennials have been made millionaires by Europe's tech boom, and new businesses are popping up to try and make their lives that little bit more comfortable than they already are. To take us through the story and into the minds of Europe's millionaires, I'm joined by Isabel Woodford, senior reporter and fintech correspondent at Sifted. Hello, Isabel. Hello, Michael. So for those of us who don't know, can you tell us what a private bank is exactly and what do they do yeah so for us mere journalists we're a little bit outside private banks usual demographic it might not be quite as glamorous as we as we think though generally they bank the ultra rich the one percent and you think about the kind of the big stores the big glass banks where they walk in and they have private bankers and private advisors and that's across their financial needs it might be when they're buying real estate it might be to ensure they have the best interest rates it might be so they can call up their banker and say i want to move x amount of money into this account and into my child's trust fund whatever it might be effectively it serves the high net worth individuals Sounds quite glamorous. <laughs> so it, it is, but it's kind of been stuck, if you like, in the in the in the 90s, at least if we think about how far banking has come on the high street for the for the everyman. That's obviously gone digital. We now have apps that that allow us to check our bank accounts and all sorts via our phones. And if you look at Coots's app rating, it's currently something like 2.2 out of five stars on the app store. So At the moment, they're not doing digital very well. And and the problem that we have identified is that there's this new generation of high net worth individuals who have grown up with their, their phones and their banks at their fingertips. And they, too, want a digital solution for their private banking. So you're the kind of person who would have an account with Monzo or Revolut. Suddenly you find your equity worth kajillions. And you want private banking, but you don't want to go back to 90s style banking. You want it to be digital. Is this the idea? Exactly. And at the moment, the incumbents, so the Cootses, the HSBCs, the Barclays, they haven't quite gotten up to speed with this. And even if they are digital, which they do have apps, their offerings aren't necessarily what these young millennials want. They might want to be crypto trading. They might want to have a banker who can advise them about buying a house 
in Ibiza, whatever it might be. So there's now we're starting to see the very early stages of private digital banks. In the UK, we have Monument, which just got a restricted bank license, still kind of early days for them. Another one, Second to None, which you're going to hear about a little bit later, and also Alpion in Switzerland. So what do what do rich millennials want? So fortunately, we have someone who can tell us a bit about that life. So we've spoken to Chad West, who ran up comms at Revolut in its very early days. That's now valued at $33 billion. And he owns a decent stake in the company and recently became what we might call a millennial millionaire. He didn't come from a rich family necessarily. He he kind of grew up in care and he has had this kind of journey of becoming a high net worth individual and as we're about to hear, he really had no idea where to start when it came to private banking. I think that the difference between then and now hit me quite harsh, right? Because a lot of people may have parents they can depend on who have been in these cycles before. And you have to remember, I think that is a relevant point because when I've worked in you know high growth tech companies for seven, eight years now. And I can tell you there is not many working class kids working in tech companies. And a lot of the kids you do see are high achievers from high achieving families. So they probably have those connections and those networks where they can say, you know, dad, mom, what do I do? And it's all sorted. I think that hit me pretty quickly where I was like, why do I need an accountant? And wait, how do I work out my tax? And okay, do I pay income tax on this and capital gains there? And what's the difference between EMI and CSOP? And all these, it involved hours of reading. Look, final question, which is probably more personal, but how has your identity changed? Because you mentioned being working class, but do you still feel working class in the sense that now, obviously, your wealth would put you in that identity bracket? Like, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I always joke that, you know, I'm, I'm not working class, I'm lower class, because no one worked in my family. Um, <laughs> but I think your, your class and how you view the world and how you view money doesn't change, because, it, you know, it, you've been born into a way of thinking, and my idea around spending hasn't changed. I won't spend something unless I absolutely need to, and even if I do need to spend something, I'll still try and get the price down. <laughs> so... I, I don't think that will ever change. I think material things around you may change when you know you buy a nice house and you have a nice car. Um, but I think my mentality and relationship with money won't change. I think I'll always be very fiscally conservative. I think I'll always be disciplined. So there's Chad West telling us about the experience of becoming a millennial millionaire. So Isabel, what is the gap that these new digital banks are trying to fill? So the idea is that the incumbents at the moment aren't serving the young millionaire. They've even been called the neglected mass affluent because the services being offered aren't good enough. And Chad tells us a little bit about how crap the services are for high street banks, which have private banking arms, and how how people like him aren't being served. I'm looking at it now because I'm still using the same bank that I used, you know, four or five years ago. What was funny is I was doing a bit of research about a week ago on this and I was looking at, you know, bank accounts for high net worth individuals, right? And a lot of the banks classify that as someone who makes over 70k a year or you hold 100k in assets. And the two that stand out is there's a Barclays one and a HSBC one. And I just literally, once I viewed them both, I saw no benefit whatsoever to switch over. It was what was on offer was things like discounts at Alton Towers and cinema clubs. I didn't really, I mean, of course they say, oh, we have a private banking sector and you can pick up the phone anytime, but there was no clear information of what does that actually involve? Do I get a wealth manager? Are you going to scrap legal fees if I get a mortgage with you? Are there going to be clear sort of benefits? And and no was the short answer. It was 
rubbish discounts off partners that they work with, etc., which sort of blew my mind. Um, so I'm doing a bit more research now in terms of other, you've got the likes of Coots Bank and, and, and these folks, but um, it's not something I'm sort of dying to do, but more importantly, from the research that I have done, based on my age and, and what I'm interested in, I haven't seen a player that's really targeted to my needs yeah. and speaks to me. This podcast is brought to you by Zendesk for Startups. Zendesk helps startups build lasting customer experiences from day one. With the Zendesk for Startups program, startups get customer support software for free for six months. You'll get access to expert advice and a community of founders and customer experience leaders to help you build the foundation for long-term growth. Learn more and claim your free six months at zendesk.com forward slash sifted. Okay, so what about trust? That is one of the big issues for any digital bank, let alone one holding hundreds of millions, even billions of pounds. Yeah, so this is the million dollar question. It's early days. There's no real proof that consumers will trust digital private banks. They don't have the brand power like Coots or the oak panelled corridors that you you imagine the, the private bankers to have. But instead, the newcomers are basically putting their faith in having a bank license to reassure customers. And we're about to hear from digital private bank Alpium and their CEO, Shyla Weiss, on what they're doing to try and win customers' trust ahead of their launch. For our clients, we want to demonstrate to them that we are doing the hard work up front to show them that they can trust us. And so if people are looking to store not 100 pound or 200 pound or 300 franc or whatever it is in our account, and they're looking to store 50,000 pound or 100,000 pound, it really makes sense to be a bank. And, And it's a lot of upfront work. You can't go live if you don't have the license, if your aim is to be a bank. And so The decisions that we have made have all been centered around building trust with our client. So I'll give you an example. Our team that's going to be speaking with the client is not incentivized to sell, right? So at most banks, what you see is, okay, if you sell X amount of product over the next quarter, then you get this kind of a bonus. But at Alpian, We don't incentivize that way. What we incentivize for is client satisfaction. And if you set up your company in a way that's centered around trust, all aspects of it are centered around building trust with the client, the client will feel it. Trust is not something you can say, hey, go trust me. It's something they need to feel. So there's the pitch from Alpian, but it hasn't all been plain sailing for some of these businesses, has it, Isabel? Yeah, so one of the first companies trying to do this was one called Second to None. They set up a few years ago, and I actually interviewed its founder, Henry Fudge, last year for the original article about this. He was very bullish on his business and about how it's going to disrupt not just Monzo, but also the giant private banks of the world. He knew what rich young people wanted, and he says he knew how to give it to them. To quote, he said, we're taking Soho House as a concept and putting it into financial services. But then we caught up again a few weeks ago and Fudge told me the dream of second to none has now been semi-shelved. The project's definitely on pause at the minute. After looking into the UK market more and more, and um, I have my own personal opinions about the level of objective nepotism that goes on in the world of venture capital of the UK, that unless I wanted to buy myself a pinky ring, that seed rounds can't be completed there because they've all seemed mm. to have invested in the same failing neobanks. So mm. seemingly that is a reason why they went back others. So after looking at the congestion also in the UK market for neobanks, 
we're looking at other markets that also have a far higher need for our type of clientele, which is, of course, then Switzerland immediately springs to mind as a beacon place for wealth management services globally. And, of course, um, is a hub for high net worths internationally also. Um, so it makes much more sense for us to be back in a jurisdiction which makes more sense for us. Um, so the long-term strategy has been a shift over to Switzerland, of course. Quite frankly, even after putting out quite so vocally all of our ideas two years ago, it's hilarious to see how many people haven't acted on this niche or taken up such a good idea just yet. So not a great vindication of the concept there. Do you do you see any future in it? Yes, there's clearly still a gap here. And, and whether that's going to be filled by the newcomers or from the likes of Revolut spinning out a private banking arm or from Coots getting their act together, it's still hard to say. But Chad West told us that for him, there'd be some real benefits that he wants to see private banks offering. So if the digital ones can offer that securely, there's every chance they could get the Chad West of this world on board. All right. So maybe there's maybe there's still hope. What about you, Isabel? They won you over as a as a customer when you're rich and famous, as no doubt you will be. Are you going to be digital private banking? Look, when I'm when I'm rich and famous, I'll, I'll come back and let you know. Fantastic. There we have it. There's a market in Isabel, at least. So thank you so much, Isabel. Now, in just a minute, we'll hear from the Alpian chief executive himself, trying to convince my five-year-old daughter, Eliza, to invest in his business. But first, let's hear from producer Georgina Eustick, who's going to give you the rundown on what you need to know about this sector. Hey everyone, it's Georgina here, bringing you the need-to-know sector info on the world of wealth, finance, and neobanks. First, let's get a sense of just how many millennial millionaires are out there. A recent report from Coldwell Banker estimated that in the U.S. alone, there are currently 618,000 millionaires who were born between 1981 and 1996. What's more, the report predicts that people in this age bracket will get five times wealthier over the next decade as they start to inherit money from their boomer parents. So what kind of technologies are emerging to serve this new class of tech-savvy, high-net-worth individual? Fintech is by far and away the hottest tech sector in Europe. And with a new wave of startups emerging to democratize the clunky banking industry, there's hot competition in the battle to win over this younger audience. Enter the Neobank. Also referred to as challenger banks, these fintechs offer digital-first banking experiences, appealing to millennials glued to their phones. With lower fees, seamless apps, and streamlined customer experiences, it's no wonder that the global neobanking market was valued at 34.77 billion US dollars in 2020, according to Grandview Research with Europe accounting for more than 30% of the global revenue. So where are the hotspots? According to DealRoom, Europe holds the neobank crown by miles and is home to 111 neobanks, including big hitters like Revolut, which is valued at 33 billion US dollars, N26, which is valued at 9 billion US dollars, and Monzo, which is valued at 1.6 billion US dollars. Other notable players include Bunk in the Netherlands and Starling in the UK. Latin America follows Europe with 46 neobanks, and North America comes in third with 44. Neobanks seem pretty unstoppable, right? Wrong. Some of the biggest hurdles to mass adoption are that consumers still tend to trust incumbent banks more with their money. According to Accenture, in 2020, only 45% of UK consumers believe that neobanks will survive the next 12 months. Another issue is that neobanks often have an unclear business model. Revenue streams can include fees for payment transactions, premium subscriptions, and commissions from third-party services, but this hasn't yet translated into a clear path towards profitability. 
Neobanks in the UK lost between 5 and 15 pounds per customer in 2019 due to weak revenue streams and increased spend on customer acquisition. But now, many neobanks are increasingly focusing on profit over hype. In 2020, UK-based Starling Bank was able to reach profitability by focusing on SME banking and business loans. But a big advantage challenger banks still have over incumbents is that they can move a lot faster. The rise of banking as a service means there are a host of startups offering ready-made chunks of the banking tech stack. This lets fintechs set up in no time by outsourcing their tech layer, meaning it's easier than ever for newcomers to launch a banking app. That's the Sifted Intelligent Unit's need-to-know sector info on neobanks. But now, over to Eliza and Episode 3 of Baby Shark Tank. This week, she'll be grilling Alpian CEO Skylar Weiss on where she should be investing and banking her marshmallows. Hi, Eliza. How are you today? Good. Good. So look, I, I have a son who's a little bit smaller than you, but he's a big fan of the swings. And I'm, I'm curious to know, you know, what is your favorite thing to do? Um, well, maybe painting. Painting, okay. You got any other favorites? Playing with my friend Molly. Okay. Well, look, I think that, you know, painting is a great thing to love to do. But when you grow up, you've got to go to work, right? And you have to do a lot of things that may you may not love to do. But let's say that you continue to love painting, right? But you don't get to do it all the time. Would you like to work with a company right, that gives you the freedom to paint. You can paint your friend Molly, right? Uh, you said her name is Molly? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, what Alpian does, what I do, is I try and help people figure out what they want to do in life and then help them do that. And sometimes it's not easy for people to do what they want. And so, do you know what you want to do when you grow up? I'm not sure yet, but well, but, but, but you have some ideas, don't you, Eliza? You think you may be an underwater scientist? Yeah, but also or, also just normal scientist. Okay. Look, that's a, great, uh, that's a great job. That's a great profession. But, I mean, wouldn't it be great to be an underwater scientist or a scientist and be able to paint? Right? I mean, and, and that's what Alpine is trying to do. Do you have any questions about that? Um, how do you really do it? Yeah, it's a good question. So at Alpian, our first our first goal is to understand what do you want? And then we've got a lot of technology and a lot of very smart people who put together a plan which says, okay, if you want a Ferrari or a, a Lamborghini or a, a nice car or a bigger house, what is the cost of that? And how much money do you have today? And then how do we help you invest the right way to go from your current amount of money to the amount of money that you need in order to paint all the time or to buy a Ferrari. And then once you've obtained the financial wealth to buy a bigger house or to paint all the time, then we offer you the ability to actually spend that wealth. So we have a debit card and a way to pay your friends or pay your bills. And so you can not only grow your wealth, but you can spend it as well. Any questions, Eliza? Mm, Not really. Not really? You understand? Okay, so next part of the challenge. Can you explain, can you repeat back to Skylar what his company does? 
So your company, if people want to do something and they can't do it, you help them do it. And That's and how right. how does he help them do it? Um, and I'm not sure. Oh, you're not sure. You're not sure. All right, should we go to the marshmallow segment? <laughs> In front of you, you have five marshmallows. So, Eliza, drum roll. Big moment. Maybe four. Four marshmallows. Very good. What do you think about that, Skylar? Well, thank you, Eliza. I'm, I'm going to work for the fifth one. What could Skylar have done to have earned the, earned, earned the fifth one? Not sure. You're not sure. Not sure. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you very much, Skylar, for playing Baby Shark Tank, our exercise in radical simplicity. And I think you did pretty well. We're four marshmallows. That's uh, that's that's pretty big. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, and thank you, Eliza, for sharing your uh, your insight with me. Bye bye. So there we are. Despite a slightly frosty reception from Eliza, Skylar Wise managed to land himself four out of five marshmallows with his hard business sell. And a big thanks to Skylar, Henry Fudge, Chad West, Isabel Woodford. And of course, Eliza for being part of the podcast. You can read more of our reporting on Startup Europe at sifted.eu, as well as in our many newsletters and on Twitter at sifted.eu. If you'd like unlimited access to our journalism, including deep dive sector reports, investigations and exclusive events, you can also become a Sifted member using the promo code PODCAST20 for 20% off. Don't forget to subscribe to the Sifted podcast and rate and review us on your favourite platform. Also, tune into the next episode, where we'll be diving into the world of audio erotica, hearing from the women entrepreneurs breaking the adult content industry's taboos and destigmatizing pleasure. The Sifted Podcast is edited by Tim Smith and produced by Georgina Eustick. I'm Sifted's editor, Michael Stothard, and I'll see you next week.